So this morning I want to uh, continue the investigation of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. This is actually the eleventh uh, talk. The previous ten are, have been recorded and are available on the uh, dharmaseed.org website. Um, and this will be the last one for a while. And I'm hoping to frame it in a way that can be very um, accessible even for people who haven't been to the previous ones. So the purpose of giving this extended examination of this core text, which is just uh, you know, 10 or 12 pages long, uh, called The Four Foundations of Mindfulness, or The Discourse on the Foundations of Mindfulness, um, a large part of the purpose that I have is really to give further uh, energy and inspiration for one's practice, and particularly to uh, bring about uh, more of a sense of interest in the practice of mindfulness. Uh, sometimes initially the practice of mindfulness can be very um, fascinating and very interesting. We see our minds more clearly, we notice our patterns and habits more readily. And, uh, and yet sometimes it's quite common for the practice to um, sort of come down to a kind of pleasant but not always so insightful or interesting practice, which is kind of calming and kind of pleasant. And meditation can sometimes be like that. It can really be not as fully uh, involved or interested as it might first have been. And a lot of the purpose of the talks is to really spur the sense of interest, the, the, the sense even as we go more deeply into experience and we look at experience, my gosh, this is amazing. Look at how my mind works. Look at that. Amazing. There's a phrase in the Tibetan language uh, called emaho, which translates into amazing. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, I was just talking with someone yesterday who has been doing a lot of retreats, and she was saying, this is so amazing just to look at how my mind works, to look at all the old conditioning, to see it, to see it more clearly, to see the patterns of mind emerging. And this can be often uh, the experience. It, it can really engender a lot of interest, and interest really feeds our practice. When we uh, sit down for meditation or when we track what's happening experience in daily life, and there's a lot of interest, it can be uh, uh, tremendously enlivening. And that's, that's the purpose here. So that we, I don't know, um, sit in meditation and something's in our mind and I say, I really want to study how my mind gets stuck with that issue that's coming up. And I really want to study it and see how I can release that stuckness. Or it might be, okay, I'm going to a family reunion and relative X always triggers me. And I'm going to go to that family reunion and my main interest is going to be mindfulness along a little compassion. You know, and I'm going to study that pattern as it emerges. And that can, be, can really energize family gatherings. <laughs> and so we've looked already at this text in quite a lot of the uh, details. We looked at the first three foundations of mindfulness were developing the capacity to be with these first three areas. The first is mindfulness of the body. The second is mindfulness of uh, what's called feeling tone, the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. The third is mindfulness effectively of thoughts and emotions. And as we study those first three foundations, we get more skill in being able to notice and track these aspects. Because with mindfulness practice, it's not that we are just told, be mindful, go away, be mindful, you know, and go away and practice mindfulness. But we're actually told, be mindful of this, be mindful of this, be mindful of that. And that's quite important because there, it's really uh, on the basis that uh, when we direct attention to certain areas of experience, there can be learning. That's effectively 
what's being said, that there can be learning. And if we devote our attention to the wrong things, we won't necessarily learn. That's the whole basis for this. And so we develop mindfulness of the body, which is crucial in all sorts of ways, especially in a highly mental and often virtual culture. And uh, you know, there, I, I found a text in the last two weeks where it says, what one thing is to be developed? Mindfulness of the body. And I often think that in terms of really connecting mindfulness with daily life. Mindfulness of the body helps take us out of the automatic and sometimes uh, uh, imperialistic stream of the mind. I don't, know, I don't know if I've ever called the stream of the mind <laughs> imperialistic, but you know what I mean, right? It can, be, it, can, it can dominate and be like an imperial ruler, you know, operating from its palace and court. <laughs> and so, and then with a feeling tone, which we come back to with the teaching of the fourth foundation, the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, subtle teaching, that we really can look at that, look at when there's particularly a very uh, strongly pleasant experience and notice the tendencies to want it, to grasp, to want more. And with unpleasant experiences, maybe more obvious, we learn that when we study unpleasant experiences, we notice the tendency for there to be strong aversion, sometimes quite reactive. And we learn, can learn tremendous amounts there. For me, when I was first meditating, and I would actually be with unpleasant experiences in the body that I knew were not causing damage, and could actually stay with it, I saw how conditioned I was to want comfort all the time. I think it's common conditioning. It wasn't my personal unique conditioning. I know that. <laughs> you know, it's very common, and I've noticed that when I've, maybe you too, when you've traveled to cultures which have lower levels of comfort or societies that, because I, I want my comfort. I'm an American. That's in the Bill of Rights. <laughs> you know? and, uh, and so it's part of what we see is we might call it our addiction to pleasant experiences and to avoiding unpleasant experiences. And again, it's not that uh, we should just always seek out unpleasant experiences. That's not the point of this, right? It's more that we want to notice what uh, the tendencies are, and it's particularly valuable because, of course, life has, as is said in the Chinese tradition, 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And if we are always reactive and aversive and tense when the 10,000 sorrows are there, there's a lot of suffering. And they're necessarily there at times. So very important teaching there. Mindfulness of thoughts and emotions, the third foundation. We uh, really can study and track our, our patterns, our common appearances. We, we get to really know our minds and bodies well. The fourth foundation continues the development of more and more subtlety. The fourth foundation, as we've seen in previous weeks, starts not only looking at the constituents of experience, which we've looked at in the first three foundations, and you can see the first three foundations on the handouts are named body, feelings, and mind. Mind really, I, I would prefer mind and heart or something like that because it includes emotions as well. And then with the fourth foundation, we move away from the focus on just the constituents of experience. And when we're just being mindful of the constituents of experience, we just try to track them. We just are aware of what's happening. We're aware of unpleasant and pleasant. And pleasant. We're aware of this thought that emotion and so forth, and we learn to stay with it. That's the training in the first three foundations of mindfulness. With the fourth, we bring in a few other dimensions. We bring in the dimension of responding skillfully to what's arising, which strictly speaking is, goes beyond a uh, narrow sense of mindfulness, which is just being with, tracking, really uh, just hanging out with what's happening with awareness. With the fourth foundation, we bring in the question of what is a skillful response? What is a wise response? So we could say we bring in responsiveness, we bring in a wisdom, and the way this is done in this text is by presenting uh, five different frameworks through which we see experience. 
And there's a movement. The five frameworks are, are listed in the handout. And, and from a distance, it can seem very, very complicated. Right? We, we, the first framework is the framework of the five so-called hindrances, that which makes mindfulness difficult, strong desire, strong aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, worry, doubt, and so forth. And those probably could add more, but those are the ones that were listed. And the second and third lists are about really studying uh, particularly first the subjective aspect of experience. What do we see when we look inside and notice experience? That's what we did in the guided meditation. <coughs> we notice these different aspects. And then the third is noticing when we look more outwardly with the senses or when we experience more with the senses, what do we see? And then the fourth is about developing positive qualities called the factors of awakening. And the fifth is the Four Noble Truth, which is really about developing freedom. So this is essentially, as I mentioned last time, a curriculum. It's a gradated curriculum in which we move first by using frameworks in which help us to address the difficulties even in being mindful. Once we have that worked out to some extent, then we look carefully at experience and see what's there. And then over time, we develop positive qualities and come to greater freedom. This is actually the entire path of practice uh, expressed in through these frameworks. And as we saw in the guided meditation, the uh, frameworks are not there in a theoretical way, but they're there as actually very simple and fairly minimal frameworks that help us look at our experience, we might say, through the lens of wisdom. Like it's using concepts in a very simple way to help us come to greater freedom. And so the whole direction uh, of the uh, practice is in this way. I thought I'd read a, a passage about that progression from uh, the teacher who actually is a monk and scholar named Analayo, a German monk and scholar, who's written probably the definitive book up to date on mindfulness, uh, which you can find in the bookstore called Satipatthana, I think it's called The Path to Realization, uh, A-N-A-L-A-Y-O. And a very definitive book, uh, has about 250 pages of discussion of a 10-page text, uh, which in itself is amazing. Sometimes, sometimes if you really get into the mode of being really interested, you can just sit there saying, amazing, amazing, or as people used to say in the hippie days, far out, <laughs> far out. I had, I had one friend, one college friend who was really into that. I think he only said far out for a year and a half. That was, that was his entire vocabulary, and many of us were concerned. <laughs> But, but that, again, that sense of, of interest. Let me, let me see that, oh my gosh, look at, look at that, look at experience. So here's, here's what Analayo said about this progression through these five. Based on a sufficient degree of mental stability through overcoming the hindrances, contemplation of the dhammas, which is this last uh, foundation, proceeds to an analysis of subjective personality, that's what we're doing today, in terms of the five aggregates and to an analysis of the relation between subjective personality and the other and the outer world in terms of the six sense spheres, these two analyses form a convenient basis for developing the awakening factors whose successful establishment constitutes a necessary condition for awakening. To awaken is to fully understand the four noble truths as they really are, this being the final exercises among the contemplations of the Dhammas and the successful culmination of Satipatthana practice. So the whole direction of all this is to come to, is to, come to freedom. So I wanted to go through these five aggregates again and go further than we did last time. And I, think, I, th I was thinking I wanted to do it again, similar to the way I did it last time, as um, a commentary linked with an experiential exercise that goes on. So it's not just me talking about this 
and you saying, hmm, that sounds good, better check it out <laughs> later. But actually we can look and see the meaning of this uh, in our own experience in the moment uh, linked with my speaking. I think that's a, uh, maybe a better, better model of learning. I think it was, I think I always learned from my, my mom, she, who was a big fan, she went to the uh, education school at Columbia and they were big fans of John Dewey. And they, the emphasis was really on learning through doing, right? Learning through doing, not just, you know, they've done tests. And you know, the number of people who learn <coughs> primarily cognitively is actually by hearing ideas is a small percentage of the population. More people learn by doing when you can connect it with the cognitive dimension. That, I think, is fruitful. So that's, that's I think, the whole philosophy of why we really emphasize meditation. Uh, so much that this is really a very pragmatic understanding of how we learn. I think that's why people are drawn to it. Right? So um, let me let me talk about the question of how do we practice with this fourth foundation, with uh, with the five uh, skandhas or aggregates. Let me talk about that in terms of four ways of practicing, and I'll take us through a guided meditation. First, I thought I'd read the text. Uh, this is from the text on the, on the uh, Four Foundations in this particular section. A practitioner dwells contemplating phenomena, that's, that's another translation for Dhamma, what we're looking at in this last foundation. A practitioner dwells contemplating phenomena as phenomena in terms of the five aggregates subject to clinging. And how does a practitioner dwell contemplating phenomena in phenomena in terms of the five aggregates affected by clinging? Here one understands this is form, such as it's, ari- such as it's arising, such as it's passing away. This is the feeling tone, such as its origin, such as it's passing away. This is perception or recognition, such as it's arising, such as it's passing away. These are the volitional formations, the fourth one such as it's arising, such as it's pass away. This is consciousness, such as it's arising, such as it's passing away. So you can see those are the instructions given. And the instructions uh, cover the first two ways of practicing that I'm going to mention, which is first, to recognize when these five qualities are there, much as we did in the guided meditation. And then secondly, to look at how they arise and pass away. Okay? So let's, let's uh, explore that now experientially. So let's start by um, putting a hand on a knee and bringing attention to your hand on your knee. Now, the first practice, I'll probably take us through, um, I'll probably take us through the first two and then I'll come back to the others, the third and fourth. The first one is recognizing when each of these five aspects of experience are present. The second is noticing for each of them the arising and passing away, noticing impermanence. The third is noticing in that flow of experience when a sense of self arises or when there is just the experience of the flow of phenomena. And the fourth is noticing when there is some degree of reaction or suffering in relationship to those five aspects. Those are four ways of practicing, which, and I'm bringing in the last two, which take us actually towards the end of the four foundations and take us to that quality of freedom in relation to any aspect of experience. So I'll unpack that, (laughs) unpack that a little bit. So, hand on the knee, just noticing the sensations of the hand on the knee. Now the first of these uh, skandhas or aggregates is that called form or rupa in the Pali language. And what we have with this model of the five aggregates or skandhas is a way of looking at first person experience, subjective experience, without bringing in the concept of self by just looking at the different constituents of experience. 
and they're broken down into five areas. And the direction of the practice is to increasingly be able to be with the flow of experience in which we uh, have each of those, these four kinds of practice happening. First, we recognize what's happening. We recognize which of these five are present. Secondly, we're able to notice the arising and passing. We're able to know the flow of experience. Thirdly, we're increasingly able to be with that flow of experience without a sense of self, without thoughts of self, or without saying, my knee is killing me, or something like that. And fourthly, we're able to uh, be with that flow of experience increasingly without suffering in the sense of strong reactions. So that's the, that's the direction. So this, this is uh, really this model of the five skandhas. I mentioned last time the word literally just means heap. It's like a sense of a collection. So these are like the five kinds of stuff, as my colleague Guy Armstrong likes to say, the five kinds of stuff that we find in experience. And they could be likened to a collection of five kinds of stuff. And this is, uh, on this analysis, this is, this is what, what we encounter in experience. I think the model could probably, you know, we could have more than five. We probably could add to this and say, well, there are 10 kinds of stuff or 15 kinds of stuff. But again, this is trying to make the point in a simple way. So, hand on the knee. We notice the first kind of, kind of experience or the first maybe instead of kinds of stuff we might say, Five first aspect of experience is just the awareness related to form, which means the body and uh, outer objects. So I'm just here, I'm just aware of the experience of sensation, of noticing the contact of the hand with the knee. Now, as I mentioned last time, what we're partly invited to do with all of this is to go beneath the level of concepts. That's part of what gives the meditation a lot of power. And so we can notice when I'm experiencing these sensations, am I beneath the level of concepts or am I conceptualizing? This is my knee, this is my hand. Or can I somehow go to sensations which don't necessarily have concepts or labels? So we just stay with those sensations of the contact of the hand and the knee, what we call that, but we actually don't need to use the concept hand and knee. And much like we are with the breath, we just stay with that flow of sensations. The first kind of practice would be to recognize that, that we're attending to form. So we would, might use a very light concept. We might say sensation, or we might say um, you know, awareness of form. You know, I would probably say just there's sensation occurring, just so I'm aware of what's happening. But do that in a very light way. So we're using concepts just a little, but mostly getting beneath the level of concepts. And then I would stay with that flow of sensations. The first kind of practice would be just to know that that's happening. The second kind of practice would be to tune in to the flow aspect, to the sense of change. to how it might be pulsing. Or moving in some way. And I think I will bring in the third and fourth practice at this point. The third practice would just to be with this flow of experience. And can I experience that without any sense of self arising? 
Can I just have my awareness with the flow of sensations? And then I can notice when the sense of self does arise. It might be through thoughts like, how long is this going to go on? Or, uh, I like this. Or a plan, I'll have to do this in my meditation tomorrow. (laughs) Or whatever it might be. We just notice that sense of self. Or there there could be some other preoccupation of thoughts. And the self would appear in many different ways. So we just notice if the self's appearing. And if it does, we just come back to the sensations. And then the fourth kind of practice would be staying with the sensations and also having our radar up for any moment of what we call suffering or reactivity. And and I think you know, uh, those of you who have been here know that we often make this distinction, which probably not all of you have heard, between pain and suffering or between the presence of the unpleasant, which in English would sometimes be called suffering, But here we make a more technical distinction between the presence of the unpleasant and the reactions to the unpleasant. And we call the latter suffering. The first uh, doesn't necessarily lead to suffering. I can have unpleasant experiences and not react to them. It's like that story I sometimes tell of of a woman in hospice who was... A, um, actually a double amputee and didn't have that long to live. And at the foot of her bed, she says, has a sign that says, pain is a given, suffering is an option. So that's the distinction. So we, we look for that reaction. It could be just, I don't like this. When is this going to end? And the body could get tense and so forth. It could be that. You know, and may, there may not be any particular suffering with this example, but we know in other instances there could be other kinds of experiences if we're something that would make us impatient or agitated, right? So we look for that. And the practice would be if we notice that, we see is there a way that I'm grasping at something or attached to some outcome? Can I just let go? If it's about if it's a reaction to the unpleasant, can I just experience the unpleasant without any reaction? Can I relax into it? So this way of working with the four practices with what we call the first aggregate or that of form, in this case uh, just tracking sensations, is a kind of model for the other four uh, aggregates or the other four aspects of experience that, were, that are there in this teaching of the Buddha. The second would be noticing feeling tone or the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So here I'll ask you to Increase the pressure on your knee (laughs) to the point where it's a little bit unpleasant, okay? And our first practice would simply be to track that there's a sense of unpleasant inexperience and hang out with it and see what it's like. That would be the first practice. So again, just put a little pressure on your knee so that it could be mildly or moderately unpleasant. And just stay with that and see what the experience of unpleasant is like and know that it's there. 
And notice also that it's changing. This is the second practice. Notice that the sense of unpleasant may vary in level of intensity. Or your hand might relax and it might suddenly become pleasantly warm. (laughs) Notice the change. This is especially important in meditation because often when we have a strong sense of unpleasant or unpleasant, it's as it were the reptilian brain is activated (laughs) and we, it becomes, oh, got to get the pleasant, oh, got to avoid the unpleasant. And here we're just invited to stay with it and we can notice the pleasant as it changes. You can notice this during a meal, for example. The third practice would be noticing if there's a sense of self arising. With this example, there might not be too much happening. With other kinds of uh, experiences, there might be a lot of sense of self arising. Or if this was more painful, right? It might arise. And then noticing if there are any reactions, any sense of suffering. We could also do this similarly with the last three. We could do this with the sense of perceiving recognition of something, can know that it's happening, can watch changing objects occur, can notice if it's connected with a sense of self or a sense of suffering. We can do this with thoughts and emotions where the practice can be very, very uh, helpful. Where we notice thoughts and emotions, we recognize that they're there. I recognize, oh, there's that thought there, particularly with repetitive thoughts. And then I also notice that thoughts and emotions are changing, that they're continually changing. Sometimes when the mind gets quiet, it's like we just sit there and thoughts and emotions come and go. And we let them go and we can see, oh, there's the mind, oh, ten thoughts just came by and it's a little bit like I'm, what, uh, at an amusement park where I'm riding around on the carousel and I I get the ring. (laughs) When I pass the place where you get the ring, I get the ring. And here it's like we have ten thoughts come by and my mind goes, zomp, (laughs) or onto one of them, right? And then I I go with it. Then I, ten thoughts come by, I take one of them, oh, that's my financial worry thought. Okay, I think I'll be with that for the next ten minutes (laughs) in meditation. And we just track that. We just watch that. We watch the arising, we watch the passing. Of them, we watch when a sense of self arises. We watch if there's suffering related to a particular thought. And this would be, again, how we can work with this particular uh, aspect of experience. And I won't go in detail through the, the latter three, uh, partly just to give some time for, for, for talking together. But the <coughs> aim of the practice, what it moves towards, as I mentioned, as we do this practice more and more, we increasingly, in our meditation, can be with our experience so that it's more like a sense of unimpeded flow, which can be a very amazing experience, you know, just to see, oh my gosh, look at all these thoughts and emotions and look at how experience is being generated and I'm not actually sitting here controlling it, believe it or not. Amazing. (laughs) It's just happening. I think I'm in control, but hey, when I sit back and try not to control it, it still keeps happening. Who's in charge? Oh, amazing. <laughs> you know? And I sit, can sit back and watch it. And then I also, as we do that, we also notice, oh, where do I get caught? Where is there a sense of self arising? And increasingly, 
we notice that more and more. And that's a long process of learning. We notice where we get stuck. We notice in the flow, where does my mind go zap? Or what's the right word for it? It's kind of like the, like a fly with its, like a frog with its tongue getting a fly. <laughs> like that. Where does my mind, uh, what's the right word for that? Huh? Well, yeah, like an action word, like glonk. Or <laughs> huh? Glom on. Glom on. Maybe that's close enough. And so where does my mind glom on? Where, is, where does my mind glom on and get attached? Right? And so where does it do that? And that's, that's, this is what we do in our practice. We study this. I have to say we study it for hours, and maybe more than hours. We, study, we keep on studying that this is really our practice. And out of this, we see where the mind does glom on. We see a lot of the roots of suffering. This is the purpose of all this. And we actually awaken more to a sense that what's essential is the wise and compassionate awareness that notices the process and less any particular thing happening. And that is the learning that occurs as we, as we stay with it. We see specifically where we get caught. We notice impermanence. We study that. We could talk a lot about that. We study that in all sorts of ways. We know what's happening. We study impermanence. We see where a sense of self arises. We open to a sense of the flow of experience, increasingly without a sense of self. or with more of a sense of interdependence, let's say. And we see where we get caught and where we suffer. You know? And as I've mentioned in the past, when we were looking at questions of self and not self, these experiences that we have, where we don't get attached to experience, where we just stay with the flow, where we have less of a sense of self, are for most of us the most important experiences of our lives, where we may experience tremendous love, in relationship to another, and some of the sense of self goes away, or creativity. Think of an artist or a musician, a jazz musician playing with a lack of a sense of self, but totally with the flow of the music. That's, that's a nice model for our meditation. Or an artist who's totally in the creative groove, and there's not much sense of self, and hopefully not too much suffering. <laughs> right? And that's interesting, and that's really the direction here. You know, and so we really can train for it both in meditation and then bringing it out into daily life. And that's what this teaching can help us. And I think this was the specificity of saying there are these four ways of practicing. Recognize what's there. Notice change and impermanence, second. Thirdly, notice when the sense of self arises and see if you can open to an increasingly... Uh, uh, spontaneous flow without that rigid sense of self. And fourthly, notice where suffering arises and see if one can release that. These four kinds of practices are the core ways that we train. And it's a way that, that freedom develops. And we do it together, and it takes time, and it's amazing. <laughs> so. Thank you for your kind attention. You can take the hand off your knee. <laughs> so I hope it didn't get molded. So any, any observations uh, from your experience or any uh, questions or thoughts, please. Um, I, I've been reading a book by Daniel Goleman yeah. called Vital Lies, Simple Truths. Yeah. Um, and it's really extraordinary in that he is looking at the neurobiology of attention mm -hmm. and how we are constantly battling between anxiety and attention. Mm -hmm. And uh, it goes very nicely with what you've been mm. teaching today. Yeah. Yeah, so that... Uh work in neurobiology that really uh, fills out in certain ways, more in a scientific way, some of, some of this uh, study of attention 
and how our attention just gets pulled in all sorts of ways at times, and how it's a training to be with that and to let it uh, settle, right? Let the anxiety or the habitual energy settle. So it takes time. And the, um, you know, one of the, one of the great things about this practice and we saw this when we looked at this first model, which is that of the hindrances, or that which makes mindfulness difficult. One of the great things about this is that um, mindfulness is always possible. You don't have to wait for great conditions to be mindful. And there can be mindfulness of what gets in the way of mindfulness. And that is very important. So, there, so whatever's happening experience, in experience, the proper response is being mindful. It's interesting. You know, and, and one can learn a lot by being mindful of what stands in the way of mindfulness. Just like one can deepen close relationships by seeing what stands in the way of close relationships. Um, I think that's a... I hope that analogy didn't come out of left field. So, so. Um, please, uh, Adrian. Now and also last week when we were doing the hand thing, yeah. And uh, when we got to the point of uh, just concentrating on sensations, I could deal with the uh, hot, cold pressure, yeah. and that kind of stuff. And then if I if if I also dealt with C, yeah, my hand became like apart from my body. Yeah, it wasn't part of my body. Yeah, it was just sort of an object out there. Yeah, and so I thought about that, but at a certain point it got too creepy. And yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't stay with that. Yeah. And so uh, the creepy part is the sense of self, right? It's like, it's like uh, having a judgment. <laughs> yeah. It was just too much. I mean, maybe it was just an- the anxiety thing yeah. or the bizarreness of seeing a body part apart Mm-hmm. Not feeling it connected to your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the interesting observation about uh, being with uh, one's hand and bringing in the concept, the um, sense of vision, um, and having a sense. Uh, I, I would say this was probably more of a, a thought or some kind of immediate perception that the hand was separate from the body. Mm-hmm. And um, that's probably, not, that's not a direct sensation. That would be a thought, right? Uh, I think, or a thought or some kind of uh, sense of things, we would say. And then from that, uh, when you stayed with that, it, it became a little, what you call it, creepy, mm-hmm. right? And, um, and then it was hard to actually stay with the sensations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um, so that's interesting, and you were wondering whether this is the sense of self coming in. Um, I think a few things were being were being triggered. One of them, there was that that thought there that you know, oh, it was like a kind of a different perception, mm-hmm. of like this floating hand, like in horror movies or something. That you know, the hand that <laughs> is autonomous that's just floating. And I think there was a, I remember a film like that. Idle hands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and so it kind of, you know, who knows whether, you know, all your, I don't know, all your past history of watching horror films, which I, I probably watched, you know, like hundreds of them when I was a teenager. And, um, you know, it kind of came back and it led to weird feelings and so forth. So, um, yeah, there was, there was clearly some, some kind of uh, projection onto experience. Uh, as weird, right? Mm-hmm. That was there, and that was leading to a certain anxiety. So this would be, I would say, the activation of thought in this particular context, that everyone who looks at a hand is not going to have the same experience. This was something that was arising for you, and that you noticed that that made it very hard to look at it, made it very uncomfortable, right? Mm-hmm. right. So um, I think that just happened. You know, if you wanted to work with it, you would stay more at the level of sensations. Yeah, maybe the last one, because we're, we're at time. I'm just trying, I, somehow or other, I just can't, I'm not wrapping my mind around this whole, what is volitions? Mm-hmm. Where in what you've been talking about, I get 
form, feeling, cognition, which is the mm -hmm. thoughts and the feelings, like mm -hmm. the hand, uh, what Adrian was mm -hmm. talking about, that being thoughts, being part of cognition. Mm -hmm. Is volitions the reaction? Well, uh, yeah, the question is about the, this fourth aggregate, um, which is translated as volitional, what's it, volitional formations. It just says volition here. Volitions. Um, yeah, so I, I didn't go into detail in trying to unpack and explain what's meant by each of these. I was trying to give more um, a simple sense of this and really just translating this primarily as thoughts and emotions for the purposes of our exercise. Uh, but in, in, the, in the actual text, the word is sankara, S-A-N-K-H-A-R-A. And it's sort of a grab bag for thoughts, emotions, habitual tendencies. And there is a particular focus on the uh, role of intention in the habitual energies. Like, what's the intention there? Is it trying to gain pleasure, trying to get security, trying to get this or that. So this relates to the focus on intention as key in practice. And like I say, this category is sort of a big grab bag category that has that general term. And so what is in this particular framework, it covers thoughts and emotions, but part of the um, practical emphasis is to say, what's the intention connected with that? If I have a habitual, if I have a habitual pattern or of thought, let's say, to worry about financial issues, and that keeps coming up, part of the practice would be, what's the intention there? What's the underlying intention? So, and it's related to the importance of intention in practice generally. Uh, you know, it's intention is connected with karma, I think, as you know. So I think that's the, so I chose not to give a, a real detailed unpacking of that category, but trying because, but more trying to say what it means experientially when we go home and practice, that it really, it's enough to say, just track thoughts and emotions and habitual energies. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. So, yeah, so keep it simple. <laughs> keep it simple. Think, keep it simple. Think of those four types of practice. It's really, it's really staying with the different, the whole purpose of this. And I think for me, these five aggregates are somewhat arbitrary. We could carve up experience somewhat differently. So for me, there's not anything deeply, um, it's, let me, sit, let me back up. It's a practical framework, and it has some use, but from a theoretical point of view, we could do it differently. Right? We could really work with it um, differently. We could have a different model. So the purpose here is especially just to be able to see the different constituents of experience when they're occurring, know that they're occurring, and be re relate to them beneath the level of conceptualization for the most part. So we're just with more direct experience. And then when we're doing that, then watch when, or watch uh, the flow of experience. Notice arising and passing. Notice change. That's the um, second kind of practice. Third is notice when a strong sense of self arises. And fourthly, notice when some suffering arises. And so these are, the last three are what are called the three characteristics of um, experience or of existence. And attention to these last three is taken to be liberatory. That when we really focus on impermanence, and we really focus on when a strong sense of self arises and opening to a sense of flow beyond that sense of rigid self, and then lastly, when suffering arises, and how to release suffering. When we attend to those three, these are actually taken to be the complete heart of our practice. This isn't just another little framework or another little talk. This is it. When we talk about insight meditation and what brings freedom, attention to these three is especially important. The first one is 
The first was impermanence. Impermanence? Change. Change. <coughs> noticing change. In the text it says noticing arising and passing away. So the first is impermanence? Oh, the, I gave four practices. The first was just recognizing what's there. And then the last three are these three characteristics. Impermanence, noticing self, and when there's an absence of self, and then noticing suffering. Now, for practical purposes, just take one at a time and spend some time with it. You know, and there can be a sequence, just so you could take a week just really tuning into impermanence in your practice. Or a week really looking at uh, just recognizing what's there. And then maybe a second week really noticing impermanence. A third week, let me notice whenever a self gets really thick in my experience. Let me just notice that. In meditation, when I'm talking with someone else, when do I say, well, you wouldn't believe what I just did. Might be a bit self there. So track that. (laughs) And then lastly, uh, track whenever we get stuck, basically. When we get stuck, when there's some suffering, when there's a strong reaction. And that's, these are the, and we could, t- we could really look at that for a week, or we could do each of these for a month. But this is really, this is guidance for our practice that can um, really help us go deep. And my hope is, again, that this, when we look at this, the level of interest gets higher. Level of interest and investigation gets higher. So I'll invite us to just take a moment to see if there's an intention with which we leave our session today. Maybe to work with some of these practices. And then we offer the fruits of our morning, fruits of our time together, out beyond these walls for the benefit of all beings, all of those with whom we come in contact. Ourselves are included in all beings, and then beyond the walls in known and unknown ways to all beings. So thank you again for your attention. Thank you for your attention during this series. And I'll see you in the teaching role in April. (laughs) But I'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.